Listener Production. Welcome to the Motorsport Brief. It's Wednesday, the 31st of May, 2023. What a weekend of racing. A shower during the Monaco Grand Prix spiced things up. And at the Indy 500, it was a wild dash to the finish that kept us on the edge of our seats. Today, you'll meet the Aussie who played an important part in Roger Penske's 19th win at the greatest spectacle in racing. G'day everybody, Greg Rust with you for this week's Rusty's Garage Shortcast. Thank you for all the feedback on our latest long-form episode two with Nathan Prendergast, who has made quite a mark on motorsport TV coverage locally and globally, from Supercars TV and drag racing in Australia and New Zealand, through to World Supercross, Dakar and F1. You will enjoy that journey with him. Lots of laughs along the way. Now, while we're on the subject of kind of spreading your wings to work in motorsport beyond this corner of the world, today's guest is a shining light, a bit like James Small, who we had on recently. Luke Mason is now based stateside and works in a significant role on Joseph Newgarden's car. So that win in the 500 must have felt bloody special for Luke too. He has dialed in from Charlotte, North Carolina. Congratulations. Cheers, mate. It still sounds, uh, still doesn't sound real when you say it like that, but it, uh, <laughs> the more people keep telling me it happened, I might have to start believing it soon. There is a cool piece that listeners can find online by the legendary Marshall Pruitt, right? Racer.com. Just to, to set the scene here, six races into your partnership with Joseph and you win, mate, an iconic race that some have waited a lifetime for. It almost it almost feels like you're cheating a little bit because you, you see guys that have been in that paddock for 25, 30 years, you know, busting their ass trying to win the thing and, and we rock up, you know, first time engineering the car there and we go and get it done straight away. So it's, as, as I say, it, it's still still pretty surreal to think about what we just did. Marshall talks about, I think he said, your lips were quivering afterwards as you you stood beside the famous yard of bricks. Uh, share, if you can, a, a bit of that moment with us. I mean, it clearly, as it would, meant a lot to you. Yeah, I think he just got good timing because I've just run around like an idiot for the last 15 minutes cheering <laughs> and hugging everyone. So it was, I think it was more out of breath than what I was quivering. But no, it was, you sort of, you're watching that car cross the line and you have the moment where it's like, this is actually happening. And then, and then that point I said, I, I blacked out for the next 15 minutes, just, just going mental with all the crew and, and everything else. And then the driver rocks up and parks it on the bricks and, and he exits stage left straight into the crowd. So the first thought of, of all of us is, well, we're, we're going into the crowd. So, so off we went, <laughs> off we went. And you know, by the time we'd climbed the fence and, and had a good time with, with the crowd there, we you said, I was, I was out of breath. So I sort of slowly made my, my way back to the bricks there. And, and then sure enough, Marshall sticks a microphone in my face and, and says, let's go. So <laughs> So, he, so what he captured was was about as raw emotion as you can get. I think it was it was right there, right then. Those celebrations in the crowd will be replayed um, time and again. They were really cool. Take us a bit beyond that. You may not be able to share too much with us, Luke. But what were once everything settled down and you were you know back in the in you know with the team and and what have you and Roger and so on. What were the what were the celebrations next phase like? Yeah, so you, you sort of you do all, do all that stuff on the track, and then you you go up and uh, they put the car up on the ramp, and you go go up the top there on the podium. So we all gather around there, and then 
the reef comes out and the milk comes out and that starts going everywhere. So, you know, there's there's multiple bottles of milk that get passed around and, and shared around the team. So that got that got drunk pretty quick and then that got spilt very quick on everyone else and more photos and we get that done and then from there it's it's down to the bricks and they go do their little victory lap in, in the convertible there and wave to the crowd and they line all us up. So when he when he comes in the front straight there, he jumps straight off and we get down on our hands, hands and knees and make out with some, you know, 50-degree bricks, which, which is that. Uh, I, I think that was the moment it really hit home what we were doing is, you know, you, you see people and you watch that on TV, that, that tradition, and being, being able to say that you've ticked that box and done that, that was, that was pretty special. Luke, in this business, as you know, mate, some days are diamonds, right? Is it true that you guys fundamentally left the car alone for the, the whole race, that it, it seemed like it was just perfect. Is that correct? Yeah, so you go into these things thinking you've, you're going to get it wrong and the weather's going to change and the track rubbers up and grips up and obviously you go forward and backwards depending on you know, where you are track position-wise. So the expectation is you're going to, you're going to touch something at, at some point and, and more often than not, we're engineers, we can't help ourselves, we're going to try and make everything better. But... <laughs> We just kept going through the day and, you know, we kept asking the question, you know, do we need a tyre pressure adjustment? Do we need to touch a wing? You know, what do we need to do here to, to put ourselves in the position to go? And, and every time we asked, he's like, no, it's good, don't touch it. And we kept asking and he kept saying, don't touch it. So, yeah, you have those days where the thing's perfect and you don't touch a thing. It's, as, as an engineer, that's about as good as it gets. Agreed. It's it's kind of still relatively early, right, in your IndyCar engineering chapter. What is it like working for the captain, Roger Penske, Tim Sindrick, that whole organisation, and what was their reaction to this win? You, you just pinch yourself that you're just surrounded by quality. You know, you've, you've got Roger and Tim who have, have been at Dunnard forever, and you know, the one that got me was, you know, we've got four-time Indy, Indy winner Rick Mears in our garage the whole two weeks just, just hanging out, having a chat like he's your best mate, about to go have a beer with you after, after practice, you know, and you're surrounded by all these people and, you know, everyone's just so committed and so driven and all, all they want to do is win the race. It's whatever it takes to win that race. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that I, I get to, to work alongside Tim on the two car anyway. He, he's the strategist for Joseph and has been for quite a long time, so... And so me, me and Tim are, are pretty close in, in how we how we go and call the race. And you know, we, we haven't had an argument yet. I'm sure it's going to happen soon, and he'll win because he's the boss, and that's how it works. <laughs> but but uh, you know, you, you see those guys, and you know, Roger comes up to you and gives you a big hug and a handshake and says, "Great job!" And you're like, "I, I just won this guy's 19th Indianapolis 500, and he knows he knows who I am." You know, it, it's it's still. Still surreal. That is why he is a great leader, mate. Yet another example of it. What about Joseph, right? We see his character on Bus Bros with his good mate, Scott McLaughlin, who we all know. What about Joseph, the racer, now Indy 500 winner? He would be the the most competitive guy, whether it was racing, sports, life. The most competitive guy I've ever, I've ever been around. And Wow. You know the how how dedicated that guy is to to his craft and and what he does. You know in his in his preparation. You know not just the driving side, but obviously looking after himself. And you know we're not afraid to give him some shit about him taking his shirt off all the time whenever he gets the chance. But you know if I had a rig like that, I'd walk around without my shirt off as well. So you know he he he, he really is he really is 
you know, just so passionate and dedicated and driven to be the best race driver he can be. And, you know, ultimately he wants to be the best IndyCar driver that, that's ever existed. So in many respects, it, it makes my job really easy because, you know, if, if, if we're not there, we're not fastest and the car's not competitive, it's, it's me. It's, I've got to get the car right because, you know, he, he's going he's gonna to figure himself out and, and do his job to the best of his ability. Luke, in unpacking the race and the whole kind of month of May, um, for that matter, firstly, how was the, the lead-up and, and how much confidence did you kind of have? Because on paper, the Penske cars didn't exactly have great qualifying speed or it, or it looked that way, but did you feel like you had something good for the race, for the 500? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one because you always you, know, you do all your R&D in the off-season and you, you go do your aero work and you work on your driveline and... You, you think that you've made big gains and then you, you rock up to the speedway and maybe you get to Fast Friday for the first time and we get to turn the boost up and that's kind of the the moment where if you can see what everyone's got. That's, that's We have to try that day. And we sort of tried and we're like, okay, we should be there or thereabouts and we were fairly happy and then we got the qualifying day and we realised that we just we just didn't quite have it. We just weren't quite there and you sort of go through that day and you know I'll tell everyone who asked that, and the race day is the easy day. It's qualifying day is the most stressful day of the year by by a mile. The amount of pressure that everyone's under to perform that day, and so unfortunately we we, we just didn't have the speed. And you know, it wasn't for a lack of trying. <laughs> we tried a few different things amongst the three of the cars to try to find a bit more, and we just we just couldn't get there. So that's that's obviously a big priority in the off season. But but the whole mm. the whole two weeks, even even going back to the open test, which we had there in April. We always had a really high level of confidence in the race car. It was the conversation, you know, amongst our group was just, we just have to get this thing to the front. It doesn't matter where we where we qualify. If we find a way to get it to the front, we're going to go win the race. And, and we sort of sort of carried that confidence with the race car the majority of the way through. And yeah, it just it just showed there at the end there that you know you can win from anywhere that race. It's strange things happen, you know. You don't generally have to have the fastest car. You seem to have a very good, capable car and a driver whose mm. confidence is through the roof to be able to do what he needs to do. Mm. Like a Bathurst, a lot does happen in that in that 500. The, the race itself, mate, the first kind of two-thirds or three-quarters was this crazy sprint, and then we had some some stoppages. What words did you have for, for Joseph, and what did the kind of crew talk about knowing that you basically had to go out at the end and lay it on the line one final time? Well, it was funny because we had we had three goes at it. We had three red flags, so we kind of, you know, we, Ericsson had, had led one, and we obviously get some some live data through different channels to know that, well, he's probably going to restart in this gear, at this speed, and this rev, so to maximise our performance, we need to be here, so... A big part of the initial part is you know, making sure that we get him to do the right thing to maximise our restart. And then sure enough, you know, we we were leading the restart the second time and uh, we had a big plan and we're talking about what we're going to do when our big plan is and, and unfortunately he completely botched it. So we ended up getting overtaken at the start-finish line and, and that proved to be a blessing, to be honest, because we got another opportunity and... At that, at that point, it really paid to be second in line for the, the final mm. lap shootout, you know. And I don't, mm. I don't think, I don't think, regardless who you were, you you weren't going to win if you were first, or it was going to take something pretty remarkable to keep the lead, just based on what had happened throughout the day. So to start mm. second, you know, we, we gave him the information that he needed that 
it was probably going to be at this speed and we want you in this gear and, and be ready to go. And, and after that, we were hands off and he's good enough to know what he needed to do and, and plan what he needed. And, and sure enough, he, he executed. Luke's been good enough to stick around a little bit longer. Quick break and back with more on this edition of the Motorsport Brief. When I set out on this podcast mission, Luke, I wanted to make them a bit broader, right? Not just uh, winning drivers, riders and so on. There are so many stories in our game worth sharing for our audience, if you don't mind, about how you, you got into it, right? What fueled the fire? Where did the love of motorsport come from for you? I don't, I don't really know. I think my old man was always a rep head and he always was around cars. I remember looking at photos of... He had an old HQ Monaro, he had a nice panel van, he was building motors and a few family videos of him back in the day with his big moustache and mullet working on an engine. And so, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is pretty cool. So, and then, and then from there, I think a lot of it was just being stuck in front of the TV at the right time, watching stuff. You know, I can remember, mm. I can remember watching Bathurst in 95 when Larry won and all of a sudden I liked the green car and had no idea who it was, but the green car was my favourite and it probably all started back there, you know, and and then from there it was always, for whatever reason, it was never limited to, to supercars when I was younger. I would I would record mm. F1 races and, and watch those and you know, mum will kill me, but I, I uh, accidentally deleted a 96 family trip to Darwin video to watch the Monaco <laughs> Grand Prix. So we've lost that one. That one's gone forever, unfortunately, but, you know, I can tell you the, the race was great. I remember watching Monaco and... <laughs> And being sent to my room for what I'd done, but no, I think it's always been there from a young age, and you mm. sort of go through that phase where you, know, you kind of realise that the money's not there to successfully drive or, or have what it takes to, to go through that path. So what's what's second best? So mm. I think I think some way somehow I was going to end up in in motorsport. It was just going to depend on my path, what I what I was going to take, and where it was going to lead. Did you always have that inner desire to want to go to either a, a Europe or, or an America? Was that something you know very early on that you were you were passionate about pursuing? Yeah, in some ways, I think you know I was I was pretty early thrust into the whole supercars engineering world. I was I was twenty four when I took over that gig on on the on the Mercs there with with Will Davo and. You know, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I was I was a race engineer in a V8 supercar. That's all I wanted to do and. You know, when that thing looked like it was going to go in a different direction, I sort of, sort of made a choice there that, you know, if I don't move now or don't try anything, be it be it Europe or America, that I was I was going to stay there for the rest of my life. It was going to be Australian mm. racing, and I was going to put put down some groundwork, and that was going to be me forever. So the way it worked out and the timing of everything, it's like, well, I need to, I need to go now, otherwise I'm never going to do it. So mm. that's kind of how how it came about. I've got very fond memories. I think there's even a lovely congratulations from Rihanna Crean there on socials for for you and um, you know Will Davison as well. That that win that you talked about, it's very um, it's etched very much in my mind. 2015 in in Perth that you played a, a very significant part in with those Mercs. Um, the move to the the US uh, initially, am I right in saying it, that the pathway was actually NASCAR, Richard Childress, and so on? How did it sort of start? How did you get a break in there? Like, I kind of realised that I was I was going to go and then. America seemed the easiest path, just the way the way it worked out and who I was I was talking to and you know, through through friend groups and, and everyone else in racing, you, you meet people and you sort of form relationships and, and one was was with James Small. You know, I got to know him pretty well and 
I sort of asked the question like, hey, are they, are they looking for anyone else over there? What, what do they think? And sure enough, they said they were. So I got an interview with, with those guys and, and it was midway through the supercars year in 2015. I, I had to uh, go back to Perth to, uh, for some family <laughs> reasons. And I was, I was showing the, showing the workshop at Richard Childress and pretty much, pretty much had the contract ready to go and, and signed it then and there. So it was just after that, it was a matter of just getting through the year and, and figuring it out. So I can thank Smallsy for that one to, for originally opening the door. He's another guy who's sent you a great congratulations. Just quickly on Erebus, they've had a great run of late with Brody Kostecki, Will Brown, who's been on the podcast recently. Do you kind of watch? Do you stay in touch with people in the paddock there? Yeah, there's still a lot of people that I'm very close to. You know, and you always, obviously the time zone and the way it works out is a bit awkward, but, but generally speaking, we can get we can get practice one over here. And if I'm feeling really bold, I can stay up and watch qualifying. And <laughs> every now and then, you know, you'll, you'll have, the, have the race on for breakfast. You know, that's generally how it works. So, no, I've, I've kept my eye on it. Kept, you always, you never, for me, it's, you never know what might happen, right? So if, there's, if mm. something were to happen and the circumstances are right and I had to come home, you've got to keep your finger on the pulse. You know, it, yeah. it, this, this sport moves pretty quick and you don't want to left, be left behind if, if you had to come back. Correct. For you to finish here, you add to the kind of wonderful Aussie, the um, Antipodean flavour, if you like, sprinkled through the Penske Racing Organisation, Will Power, of course, reigning IndyCar champion, Scotty McLaughlin there, good mate of Joseph's, as we've already talked about. Uh, has it been a matter of you kind of dialing out some of your Aussie mannerisms when it comes to briefings, radio, whatever, or are you, uh, are you sharing some of that Aussie culture and flavour with them? No, I'm, I'm a I'm pretty much an open book, so what you see is what you get. It's what you get. I've, I've been, I've been pretty lucky that I haven't put my foot in it yet, which I'm sure, I'm sure is going to happen, and I'm going to get the slap on the wrist. But uh, it, it does get pretty interesting when, when you get the three of us in an engineering debrief, and we just go on a bit of a tangent, and we start, we start, start talking like we're back home, back home at the pub having a few cold ones, and. Literally everyone else is looking around the room trying to figure what out what is the hell we're talking on. about. <laughs> exactly. Fourth in the points now, just three behind um, Pato Award, 11 to go in the NTT IndyCar Series. Given the form that we're seeing, you know, from the likes of uh, Arrow McLaren, we know how good um, Ganassi are, and it almost looked for a moment there like a like a fairy tale for, for AJ Foyt and Santino Ferrucci at, at Indy. How hard is this mission going to be to help Joseph to a third title? I mean, they're very kid about it when they say it is the most competitive championship in the world. And I think, I think we all believe that over here. The, the calibre of driver and team is so high now that you can't, you can't leave a tenth behind. I think, I think years gone by, you could afford to be a tenth off and you'd still qualify in the ten and you'd have good pit stops and figure it out. But, but now everyone's so good that you know, we've done it this year. You miss qualifying just and all of a sudden you're, you're 15th, 16th and you're, you're trying to figure out Geez, if I just had it under tenth, we would be fifth, you know. And hmm. it, it, it's going to be difficult, you know. We've had a really good weekend. We celebrated a really good weekend, and today we're all back in the workshop trying to get a car ready to go, put in the truck, and, and head to Detroit and and keep this momentum rolling. It doesn't stop. Good stuff. Let's finish with that. Detroit this weekend, as you said. Um, give us a sense of that preparation because you're back on the streets this time of downtown Detroit. And am I right in saying, too, it's a bit of a unique pit setup there for this weekend, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a, a brand-new track. Uh, no one's been there. And it uh, it uses part of the old uh, F1 Grand Prix track. So there's a, there's a 
still a few straights and corners they use from that. And then it, and it winds around uh, the GM building smack bang in the middle of downtown. So obviously uh, a real important race for us being Chevrolet GM affiliated. So we're doing everything we can for those guys to make sure they have a good weekend and have a good result as well. So no, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, a lot of a lot of guesswork going into ride heights and what we do with with wing angles and the car setup because no one knows. No one no one's walked it yet. Um, we we do have some scans and we will jump in the simulator tomorrow night. Uh, GM's lucky <laughs> lucky for us that you know we're so so well committed with those guys that they're going to give us some time tomorrow night because. Joseph's obviously in New York gallivanting around, showing everyone his trophy <laughs> and his ring. And the earliest we can get in there is is 7 p.m. tomorrow night. So we'll do a couple of laps there and get our feet wet to kind of get an idea of where we need to be. And then, you know, Friday P1, we, we figure out how far off we are or whether we got it right. Good on you. Hey, it has been fantastic to spend a bit of time with you. Thank you very much for for coming on, um, for allowing us to share a a bit of your story and to hopefully inspire um, more engineers that might dream of going abroad and and doing a similar thing to what you and, and James Small have achieved. Congratulations on winning the 500, being a part of that whole organisation. Enjoy the celebrations and go well for the remainder of the championship. I appreciate it, mate. Cheers. He was fabulous, wasn't he? A couple of other quick stories that caught our interest this week. Clay Richards, grandson of the great Jimmy Richards, son of multiple Bathurst winner Stephen Richards, is going to make his debut in TCR competition. He's going to drive a Melbourne Performance Centre Audi. Really looking forward to that. He'll be a part of the Speed Series due 9 to 11 at Winton there in Victoria. More recently, of course, he's been racing an 86 in Australia and did some racing over summer in New Zealand as well at the wheel of a Toyota 86. Will Brown, who was on the podcast recently, has driven a sprint car at Sydney Speedway, joining the likes of Cam Waters, Shane Van Gisbergen and Brody Kostecki to dabble on the dirt. While we're on sprint car racing, well done to J-Mac. James McFadden, who's in our Rusty's Garage Library at Lawrenceburg there, he bounced back. Return to the winner's circle. That's a well-deserved victory too after a bit of a tough run for him recently. Keep it going, my man. I mentioned the Monaco Grand Prix at the top of the podcast. Max Verstappen has won there, extending his series lead. But the talking point for us back home is Oscar Piastri with a points finish and impressing the team at McLaren. It didn't look necessarily that great in Friday practice, but with that little sprinkle of rain and some good decisions, he fought his way into a points finishing position. Congratulations. Statler and Waldorf. Matt Nolte and Richard Crail. It's called the Saturday Tear-Up, a little something that's caught our attention on Facebook. You'll be able to see that at each round of the Speed Series. No driver, team member, or even commentator is safe. Now, speaking of Crailsey, shining a light for a moment on some Aussies abroad involved in motorsport, not necessarily just behind the wheel. So he's headed off overseas to take in the 100th anniversary, the centenary of the Le Mans 24-hour. And some talk that our good buddy here on the podcast, Lee Diffie, will be heading to that race as well, fresh from calling the Indy 500. Krause and Lee won't necessarily be working together, but both, we understand, will have broadcasting roles in that legendary race. We wish them well. That is it for this edition of the Motorsport Brief. Don't forget our next long-form episode out very, very soon with Drag Racing Royalty. Jim Reed. Don't miss that. On behalf of all of our team here, I'm Greg Rust. We'll catch you next time. Bye for now.